You're listening to Spirit and Truth, a no-nonsense biblical look at the person and work of the Holy Spirit. This teaching series was delivered live at the Redeemer Bible Fellowship in Medford, Oregon. For more Bible-saturated content, visit our website at RedeemerMedford.org. That's RedeemerMedford.org. We're in a sermon series on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Up on screen there, you can see the title we've given this series. Spirit and Truth, a no-nonsense biblical approach to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. This morning we're beginning a few messages in this series looking at the Spirit's role in sanctification, the Spirit's role in making us more like Jesus. And this morning I want to kind of look at the basics of that. Before we look specifically at the Holy Spirit's role, I want to take a moment and think about Just the basics of what it means that we are being made more and more like Jesus. So that's going to be our focus this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, take them and turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, um, the text will actually be up on the screen. Romans chapter 6. And we're actually going to read the entire chapter. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 23. Romans chapter 6, for the benefit of those of you visiting, we, well, I've kind of started a custom of having us read the passage together. I will read the odd-numbered verses. I'll invite you to read the even-numbered verses with me. Romans chapter 6, reading from verse 1 through to the end of the chapter, verse 23. If you're able to do so, would you stand with me? We like to stand when we read God's word out of respect for it. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, these are God's words. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may multiply? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Since a person who has died is freed from sin. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. What then? Should we sin 
because we are not under law but under grace? Absolutely not. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will abide forever. Join with me as I breathe the word of prayer. Ask for the Spirit's help, and we get to work this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we study your word this morning, and as we think a little deeply about this subject of sanctification, how it is that we're being made into the very image of Christ, I pray that the very Spirit of whom we have been speaking will be at work, opening our eyes that we would understand things from your word. Pray that you would help us, that we would grow in our appreciation of what you are doing in our lives if we know you, and if we don't know you, that you would use your word to draw your people to yourself. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. I sat by the bedside of my late mentor, a man called the Reverend Nathaniel Ramshire, knowing that he wasn't long for this world. At that point, he was 92 years old. For close to four years, this rather wily Welshman had taught me the Bible almost every day. I practically lived in his house. You know, he had this Thompson Chain reference. Some of you will know the Thompson Chain reference Bible. It's kind of fallen out of favor these days, but it's kind of an unusual tool. He used to love that Bible so much. And so for years, sat at his little table in the little apartment that he owned, and he basically discipled me. As cancer completed its grip on my teacher and friend, I'll never forget, we were in the hospital room, and you know, he's kind of weak, but you know, we're still very responsive, we're still able to have some conversations. And I remember he, I'll never forget it, he grabbed my arm, and he said, Romans 13, 14, tell it me again, with that gruff North Wales accent of his. For weeks, he'd been talking to me about sanctification and holiness, and his theme verse for his teaching, as it were, had been Romans 13, 14. My late mentor was very old school, including the fact that while he didn't dislike modern versions, he very much loved the King James Version. And so he started every teaching session with me with the same verse. And so it kind of got drilled in my head. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. 
lying in that bed, he kind of summoned up a little strength to shuffle up and said, mm-hmm, which is kind of his favorite thing to do whenever you read a passage of scripture. That would be the last conversation we had. He passed out of consciousness later that night and two days later went home to be with Jesus. My mentor, who in a lot of ways was a prophet of a man in some ways, recognized that at that point I was nearly 21. He recognized that his 21-year-old mentee needed a reminder. Uh, He needed a refresher of the fact that God was concerned with his sanctification. He recognized that this young kid who was really excited about the things of God and was really beginning at that, well, I've been grappling with it for a while, but was starting to get involved in ministry and what have you. He recognized that I needed to remember that God was and is every bit concerned with my growth in holiness as he is concerned about getting me to heaven. Well, since my mentor's passing, I've devoted myself to an ongoing study of this issue, uh, what in theological terms we call sanctification, the fact that Christians are growing into Christ-likeness. I've given myself to thinking about what does that mean? How does that work? What are wrong ways of thinking about that? For the next few weeks, as we've been studying on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, I want to zero in on the Spirit's role in our sanctification. What is it that the Holy Spirit does in particular to ensure that we grow in Christ-likeness? If I can give you an outline of where we're going in future weeks. We're going to talk about the fruits of the Spirit. We're going to talk about the filling of the Spirit. And we'll talk about the leading of the Spirit, the filling of the fruit of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, and the leading of the Spirit. But before we do that, before we can talk specifically about what the Holy Spirit does, I do need to take a moment, well, I say a moment, I need to take this sermon essentially, and kind of look at the big picture. What exactly do we mean when we talk about this idea of sanctification? Uh, Before we can properly appreciate the individual trees, as it were, it might be good for us to consider the forest as a whole. Now, I I know that when, particularly in Christian circles, we start talking about this idea of sanctification, it can be a little fear-inducing. If we're honest, it, it can sound as though we're about to give somebody a checklist of things to do. If there's a word that's become increasingly unpopular in the modern church, I I would say the word is holiness. Because holiness tends to sound like, oh great, a bunch of rules and a bunch of things I can't do. Uh, That ever misunderstood L word will creep up at this point. You know, we we can't talk about holiness because that leads to legalism. Now, I'm very sensitive to legalism. I, I don't like legalism, obviously. But I also don't, we have a physician in the house. I'm sure he would you know, agree with me that, oh, we have a nurse too. Um, I'm sure they would agree with me that if you misdiagnose something all the time, it loses its meaning. If you come in with a headache, you know, if I, if I went into the doctors with a headache and he called it cancer, when it wasn't cancer, that's a problem. We, we'd agree that, right? We'd agree that, okay, you can't just throw out words like that. That's kind of a heavy word. 
Like, if I've got a headache, tell me I've got a headache, give me some ibuprofen and send me on my way. (laughs) And I think it's very easy to apply the diagnosis of legalism to a problem that isn't legalism. When we talk about growth in holiness, we're talking about the work that the Spirit of God does in making us more and more like Jesus. And if I can give you a word of comfort this morning from the outset, God is, if you're a Christian, if you're here today and you know the Lord, God is for you in your sanctification. Like, God is not fighting against you as you pursue likeness to Jesus. No, he's on your side in that pursuit. And if God is for us in our sanctification, if he is indeed on our side, and that, that should give us comfort as we talk about this subject. It shouldn't feel like a heaviness. It shouldn't feel like, oh dear, not this subject again. <laughs> no, if God is on our side, that should encourage us. We should run boldly towards thinking about this. But we can't do that if we don't think carefully about the subject. And so this morning, um, in the remaining of our time, I I want to consider five different areas of biblical teaching. Like I said, the study guide is a little longer than it is usually for those of you who are here regularly. And it is because we've got a lot we want to consider. I want us to kind of, as I said, get the big picture. Let's nail down the basics of of this thing called sanctification so that when we get to thinking specifically about what the Holy Spirit does, we won't be so confused. My hope is that as we look at these five areas of biblical teaching, we'll come to a clearer biblical understanding of what God desires for us. Oh, might I add this? What he is doing in us. So five different areas of biblical teaching I want to look at. I've kind of put the ball as questions this morning. Question number one, what exactly is sanctification? All this idea of Christian holiness, what exactly do we mean? I mean, if we're going to have a sensible discussion, we might want to start with defining our terms. Oftentimes, a helpful way of thinking about what something means is to ask what it doesn't mean. So for a moment, point A there, let's look at some wrong views of this. Before we get to what it actually is, let's look at some wrong views that people have. Firstly, sanctification is not the same thing as moral reformation. It's not the same thing as moral reformation. In other words, we're not just talking about, you know, cleaning your act up. You know, I am thankful for programs like Celebrate Recovery, 12-step programs. I think they have their place. But that's not the same thing as sanctification. The theologian A.A. Hodge said that this view treats sanctification, quote, as nothing more than a moral reformation of life and habits worked out under the influence of the truth in the natural strength of the sinner. In other words, sanctification is not just, well, here's some things you should do. Now go work really, really hard. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be a good person. That's not the Bible's doctrine of sanctification. That's not what the Bible teaches. Secondly, it's not just mere self-denial. It's not just mere self-denial. You know, just the, as it were, I stop doing bad things. And the more bad things I stop doing, that's sanctification. That might be a part of it, I would argue, on the basis of God's word, and we'll see it as we go. That's a part that the Spirit of God does bring about. But that in and of itself, you know, 
It's like the person who wants to quit smoking. Well, okay, just I kind of knuckle down with willpower, and you know, if I kind of knuckle down hard enough, I'm going to quit smoking. Well, that's a great and noble thing. It would actually save your life in a bunch of ways. But that's not sanctification in and of itself. A third wrong idea, if we kind of move from just the general realm to the Christian realm in particular, is this idea, some of you maybe grew up in traditions that taught it, I know I did, what some people call entire sanctification or Christian perfection. The tradition I grew up in, in their doctrinal statement, they said this about this doctrine, quote, entire sanctification is a definite act of God's grace subsequent to the new birth by which the believer's heart is purified and made holy. It cannot be attained progressively by works, struggle, or suppression, but is obtained by faith in the sanctifying blood of Jesus. In other words, that there was this, to use the technical term, crisis event. There was a specific point where God basically deals with the human heart after salvation and basically makes it so that the Christian no longer has the love of sinning anymore. The way it was described in the tradition I grew up in was it was the removal of the root of the Adamic nature from the heart so that the believer no longer loved sinning anymore. Which on the surface sounds good, but then that also meant, well, the Christian then is no longer capable of sinning. While it's not angelic perfection and it's not Adamic perfection, in other words, the kind of perfection Adam had in the garden, it's still a form of perfection. Various groups teach this. So churches traditionally in the sort of Wesleyan tradition would teach this doctrine of entire sanctification. Granted, these days it's kind of watered down because everyone's watering down their theology one way or another these days. But traditionally that comes out of that movement of things. Those of you who, like myself, grew up Pentecostal, some Pentecostal traditions teach this, some don't, interestingly enough, and it's a matter of debate. But that's not a helpful view of sanctification because... I'm going to argue in just a few moments, the Bible never treats sanctification as this one-time event where you no longer want to sin and then that's it. No, it's progressive in nature. So, moral reformation, self-denial, entire sanctification. Fourthly, there's the view that basically just says sanctification is optional. Like, I don't have to actually pursue sanctification. You may think, Kofi, no one out there teaches that. Oh, you'd be surprised. There is, in this country, in the 1970s and 80s, there was a whole movement called the Free Grace Movement, which basically said that you could have Jesus as Savior, but not have to follow him as Lord, not have to submit to his Lordship, and therefore you could have somebody who made a profession of faith, and the profession of faith basically became just mental, like intellectual assent to the truths of the gospel. So you proclaim the gospel and the person says, I agree to this. They ask God to forgive them. They're saved and then proceed to walk away from the faith, never grow at all, and they will still get to heaven. The idea here is that every person who makes a profession of faith in Christ is automatically a believer. But that profession of faith doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to go on to pursue maturity in Christ-likeness. Well, that doesn't work for the simple fact the Bible, we read it here in Romans chapter 6. The Bible calls us to pursue sanctification. 
So if all of those are wrong views, moral reformation, self-denial, entire sanctification, viewing sanctification as optional, if all of those are wrong views, well, that begs the question, what's the biblical view then? What's the biblical view? As you all know, I'm not one to reinvent the wheel. I think that if our fathers in the faith define something and they defined it well, I think wisdom says we lean on their definitions. We don't treat them as scripture. We go to scripture and test it, of course. But if our fathers in the faith said something and it was helpful, we should keep it. Well, they did in this area. In your study guide, they have put the 35th question from what's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. All that is is basically a set of questions and answers about basic teachings of the faith. Again, it's a human document, so it's not perfect, but I do think they got it right in this particular area. So in explaining the question, what is sanctification, here's the answer they gave. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace by which we are renewed throughout in the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. Let me read that again. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace by which we are renewed throughout in the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. That's a mouthful, so let's take a moment. Let's break that down into some manageable portions, if that's okay. Number one, sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Let's just start there. So there goes moral reformation. There goes self-denial. It's a work of God's grace. You can't make yourself holy. No amount of self-denial, good intentions, or spiritual pulling up your bootstraps will make you more holy in God's eyes. No, God does this in us by His grace. So, a few weeks ago, we looked at the idea of regeneration, the fact that God gives us, grants us new hearts when we become believers. Ezekiel 36, 27 says, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Note that God is the one who says he will put his spirit in his people and he would be the one to cause them to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13, which we'll come back to later in the message. Paul says that we, are, we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling, which lots of people get very scared when you read that verse. But verse 13 should comfort you. It says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. It's our benediction for the service today. You'll hear it at the end of the service. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, get this, equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, the author of Hebrews says, it's God who equips you. It's plural here. Equips all of you. With everything good to do His will. Working in us what is pleasing in His sight. If we have a doctrine of sanctification that 
doesn't start with the fact that this is a work of God's grace in us. If we have a doctrine of sanctification that seems to start with, it's all about you. You need to work harder, try harder, and do better. We've missed the point entirely. So let's start there. The fact that sanctification is a work of God's grace. Secondly, sanctification is God's free work of grace that renews us throughout in the image of God. That renews us throughout in the image of God. So again, there goes self-improvement. There goes more reformation, self-denial. Why? Because sanctification is not about just being conformed to some man-made standard of godliness. It's about being conformed to the very image of God. In a very real sense, it's more than just a habit transplant, as it were. You know, you kind of stop doing some things and start doing some new things. No, it's a heart, life, and habit transplant. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, says that, Yes, we are to, verse 22, put off certain things. But 23, it says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. Okay, so we're to put off certain things, but then we're also to put on certain things. In particular, it says to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10 says it plainly. It says, you, referring to God's people, are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. So here you are as a Christian. You've come to place faith in Jesus. You've been united to Christ. You've been declared righteous. That takes place and at the same time, you are, no, he doesn't say you have been renewed. He says, no, you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. That's also important. If I can pause for a second, we talked about legalism. Do you see how that kind of cuts the D's out of legalism if you understand that properly? Because I'm being conformed in sanctification to God's image, not someone else's. The thing about legalism that I find so ridiculous, there's lots of things I find ridiculous about it, but one of the things I find ridiculous about legalism is the fact that no two people seem to have the right definition when they're legalists. Uh, have you ever noticed that? I think I've told this story before. If I have, um, I apologize. And if you haven't heard it, here it goes. Oh, I had to have been, what, nine or ten years old? Um... For a long time, my uncle used to cut my hair. He was really good at it. Um, and my parents have always been the type to not spend money if they don't have to. So they get my uncle to cut my hair for free. <laughs> and he was really good. And so being nine or ten and, you know, you want to be cool and all of that stuff. Like, the, the thing in, like, the late 90s, early 2000s, at least in the black community, was, you know, getting, like, a line in your hair, you know, like, Go look sharp. Go look fresh. Um, plus, in fact, we're about to have our Christmas convention at church. So you really want to look nice. So, like, you know, uncle's cutting my hair. And he's like, um, so for those of you who don't know, my English name is Douglas. Um, Douglas, 
you want to line it? I was like, yeah. And my mom was like, all right, if you can make it look nice, go ahead. Again, my uncle was really good at cutting hair. So he does this, like, I'm looking at this, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. And then I, I walk into church. You know, uh, the church I grew up in, we had two big conventions every year, one at Easter, one at Christmas. So, you know, walk into church, the, typically it would be Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So Friday, walk into church, you know, we're all dressed up nice, and, you know, I've got my nice haircut, you know, kind of feeling myself a little more than I should, but I also wasn't a Christian, so pride is a thing. Um, I'll never forget, a lady who was a Sunday school teacher just bounds up to me, well, to my mom, actually. Can I talk to you, son? Oh, okay. I mean, granted, I got into trouble a lot as a kid, but I was like, I haven't even done anything. We just walked in. <laughs> um, like, at least wait till I actually do something. Like, I know how this goes. You, I do something, you tell me off. But I haven't done anything. Like, what's happening? Lady walks up. Who gave you this haircut? My uncle. This is not a holy haircut. Don't get this haircut again. I'm like nine. Uh, actually, no, 10, 10. I just turned 10. I just turned 10. It was after my birthday. So I'm really confused. And like, my mom was watching this whole thing play out from a distance anyway. So I was like, God said, my mom didn't like this particular woman, but um, that's a whole other conversation. Um, what, what did she ask you? She asked about my haircut, mom. Like, what about your haircut? She asked where I got it from. And she kind of muttered under her breath, like, it's none of her business. She actually said a few other words, which we won't say <laughs> in a sermon. But none of her business. She was like, yeah, mom, she was like, it's not a holy haircut, and I shouldn't get this one again. At that point, my mom saw red. There was an argument. I don't know what was said. Um, but I digress. Funny, that person's definition of holiness was, you can't get this haircut. Now, there were other people who walked up to me and said, that's a really cool haircut. I'm like, I remember like driving home. I've always had a bit of a slick mouth, which gets me in a lot of trouble. Um, like, we're in the car. I'm like, mom, like, you church people need to get your stuff together because you, you can't seem to figure out where the rules are. <laughs> and my mom just laughed and said, yeah, I agree. <laughs> but it's funny because... That's the thing about legalism. You can either try and be conformed to people's image. Of course, people can't agree which image you should look like. Or you can go with what the Bible says, which is that, actually, no, I'm being renewed in the image of God, my creator. I, I'm doing what he told me to do. I'm being who he's called me to be. So sanctification is God's free work of grace that renews us throughout in the image of God. Thirdly, Sanctification is God's free work of grace that enables us more and more to die to sin and to live to righteousness. It enables us more and more to die to sin and to live to righteousness. You see, it, it, God's work in sanctification doesn't just clean us up and send us on our way. No, it actively works in us to desire to die to sinful impulses and passions and to live for holiness. I don't want to spend too long in this first point. If you want to take notes, Romans chapter 6, 
from verse, verse 4, verse 6, verses 12 through 14. Paul says that, I'll just quote one sentence from this, that just as you know, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we're called to walk in newness of life. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says that, so then, dear friends, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity and of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, when we talk about this, this whole idea of the biblical view of sanctification, it's both a position and a process. It's both a position and a process. What we typically mean by that is that when you became a Christian, you were set apart by God's grace. That's all the word sanctify means, by the way, to be set apart, to be put to one side, as it were. We were set apart by God's grace when we became Christians. So there's a sense in which every person who knows Jesus in this room, you are already sanctified. So Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6.11, he could say that you were washed, you were sanctified. Acts chapter 20 and verse 32, and now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. When you became a Christian, you were positionally set apart for God. As one British pastor, Errol Hulse, puts it, quote, Positionally, the believer has been placed into spiritual union with Christ. This is a definitive act. The ongoing result is a living, vital union whereby a believer possesses spiritual life and holiness. That's the other side of this. Yes, positionally we've been made righteous, but we've, we're also progressively being made righteous. And that's the sense in which we're kind of thinking about this this morning. So that's my first question. Like, what exactly is this idea called sanctification or Christian holiness? Well, that kind of begs the second question, doesn't it? Which is, well, how does this work? How exactly does this work? For this, I want us to look at two passages very quickly. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Paul has, excuse me, Paul has just spent time breaking down for us who Jesus is in verses 5 through 11 of this chapter. And then in verse 12, Philippians, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 12, Philippians 2, 12, Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, in light of the, who Jesus is and what he's done, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Keep a finger here because we're going to come back to this passage. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In one of the early messages in this series, we looked at verses 6 through 18. I want to draw your attention back to verse 18 for just a moment. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says, We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord 
and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I want to draw our attention to these two, verse, these two verses of Scripture for a moment, because I think in these, well, three verses, two passages, we get a nutshell of how, in a nutshell, excuse me, how sanctification works. How sanctification works. In particular, we learn three truths very quickly. Number one, sanctification is fundamentally internal and supernatural. It's fundamentally internal and supernatural. So Philippians 2, I ask you to keep a finger in, look at verse 13. It's God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is the one who works that in us. Uh, don't, don't miss that. Sanctification is not from the outside looking in, which is how I think oftentimes, if we can pause for a second, we're tempted to think about this, that I need outside influences to make me do something I don't want to do. Well, firstly, that's a miserable way to live your Christian life. You're doing a bunch of things you don't want to do. Where's the joy in that? Second of all, that's not how the Bible describes it. No, it's God who's working in us. Sanctification begins from the inside and works itself out. God deals with us, essentially, on the heart level. I didn't include it in this week's recommended reading, but my good friend Mike Riccardi has written a book called Sanctification, The Christian's Pursuit of God-Given Holiness. I think it's honestly one of the best things in print on this subject. And in that book, he describes sanctification like this, quote, in the, progress of progress, in the process excuse me, of progressive sanctification, God is working in us, not just to work, but also to will. He is working even on our desires. The great American theologian Charles Hodge said, quote, sanctification does not exist exclusively in a, new, in a series of a new kind of acts. It is making the tree good in order that the fruit may be good. It involves an essential change of character. Just as regeneration is a new birth, a new creation, a quickening or communicating new life, so sanctification in its essential nature is not holy acts, but such a change in the state of the soul that sinful acts become more and more infrequent and holy acts more and more habitual and controlling. In our sanctification, yes, it will manifest itself in good works, but those good works are not what sanctifies you. What sanctifies you is the presence of the Spirit of God on the inside who is, in the words of Colossians 3.10 that we just read, renewing us after the image of our Creator, and it works itself out in good works. But before you even get there, there needs to be a renovation of the heart and the will, and that's what happens in sanctification. So firstly, it's fundamentally internal and supernatural. Secondly, it's a sovereign work of the Spirit of God. A sovereign work of the Spirit of God. So again, Philippians 2.13, it's God who's working in you. And in a sense, that kind of follows on from the reality that it's internal and supernatural. If it is indeed primarily internal and supernatural, then it's not something you can work up. God has to be the one who works it in you. And when you read the Bible... The Bible tells us that the specific person of the Trinity, the 
belief that we have as Christians that God is one and yet exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The specific member of the Trinity tasked with our sanctification is the Holy Spirit. So the other passage I had us look at, 2 Corinthians 3.18, says that we are being transformed, he says, and this from the Lord who is the Spirit the Spirit is the one who's bringing about transformation in all of our lives. John Owen, in his Communion with God, which is a great book that I highly recommend, he says that, quote, the Holy Spirit is the efficient cause of all holiness and sanctification, quickening, enlightening, purifying the souls of his saints. So it's fundamentally internal and supernatural. It's a sovereign work of the Spirit of God. Thirdly, if, as we think about how sanctification works, the Spirit employs means in sanctifying believers. The Spirit employs means in sanctifying believers. You know, you know, we've kind of talked a lot so far about the God's role in this, that this is a work that God does. You can't make this happen. That, you know, the Spirit is the one who is the agent of this. He's the one tasked with this. Okay, that's true. Well, where do I come in? Do I just sit around and wait for this event? Like, you know, the... And actually, there were people in church history who taught this. The let go and let God movement, the Keswick movement. You know, the entire sanctification thing I told you about, that's another name for it. What they taught was... You know, you can't strive and try and do anything. You just wait till God does this thing to you. Well, Philippians 2.12 that we read. Paul clearly says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Paul does not say, work for your salvation with fear and trembling, which is how some people unfortunately read this passage. No, he says work out. Literally, the word there means to extract all the value you can. Get everything that you can out of your salvation and do so with fear and trembling. Now, before you get your guard up, he said fear and trembling. That sounds scary. Remember what he said? Because God is at work in you. The reason that we are able to work out, as it were, is because God has worked in us. My grandfather was an agriculturalist. Um, it is my mom's dad. He's still alive. Um, I'm kind of an embarrassment to him because I can't grow anything to save my life. Um, Laura and I have had, well, I've, we've had a couple of plants and stuff that people have given us, and they're all dead um, because I have black thumbs. I like technology. That I can deal with. I like to read. That I can deal with. Plants, mm, not so much. But I'm reliably told by people who are much better at all of those things than I am that you can't make a seed grow. Like, you, you, like a seed naturally germinates, takes root, and grows by itself. But I'm also told by people who are better at that stuff than I am that that doesn't mean you don't plant seed or sow it that you can't fertilize the soil, that you can't water it, that you, know, you can't expose it to sunlight. It's not like none of that stuff is unnecessary, so I'm told. Well, if that's true, I would say that's just as true in our sanctification. 
You can't make yourself holy, but you can create an environment in which sanctification is made easier than harder. Oh, and that's, that's true in the inverse. You can also create an environment in which sanctification is a lot harder than it should be. <laughs> we'll talk more about that in a moment, actually. I'm not going to spend too long there, but file that away. Sanctification is God's sovereign work, but he works through means, Oh, and we're responsible for our use of those means. Like I said, we'll come back to that. So, so far we've asked, what is sanctification? How does it work? I told you I had five questions. Question number three. Question number three. What is the relationship between justification and sanctification? Now, let me not assume that we all know what these words mean, so give me a moment. When we talk about justification, we're talking about the fact that the believer, through a work of God's grace, has their sins forgiven them, not because of anything that they've done, but purely because of Christ's righteousness. Because, as I said at the beginning of the message, Christ lived the life that we were unable to live and died the death that we deserved. He receives a very real righteousness as a result. And that righteousness is credited to our account when we believe. So that's our justification. But obviously we're talking about sanctification here. Is there a relationship between the two? And I ask this question because I think a lot of the confusion and a lot of the, at times, dislike that people have for this doctrine flows out of the fact that people think that we are pitting justification, the fact that we've been declared righteous, with sanctification, that we're being made righteous. And honestly, I think an issue sometimes gets made where there really is no issue. Because remember, we talked about sanctification as a position and a process. Well, let's tease that out some more. If I can put it like this. In your justification, you are, being de- you are declared, excuse me, to be righteous. That's a legal declaration. That's just a matter of, it's like going into a courtroom and the judge says you are guilty or not guilty. You've been declared not guilty. In fact, more than not guilty, you've been declared righteous. Not only are you not guilty, it's as though you've never sinned. But in your sanctification, you're being made righteous. If I can put up a little table, that might help us with this. If we were to kind of put these things in two columns, justification and sanctification, and put them side by side, we'd see that there are some big differences between them. See if I can help us out with this. First of all, In our justification, justification deals with our legal standing. Deals with our legal standing. In other words, it deals with the fact that we stand condemned and God has ruled in our favor, not because of us, but because of what Jesus has done. So it affects our legal standing. Our sanctification doesn't have anything to do with our legal standing. It deals with our internal condition. It deals with who we are on the inside. Justification happens once for all time. That's one of the big doctrines that marks out Christians from Roman Catholics. We believe, well, Protestants from Roman Catholics, I should say. We believe as Protestants, as those who come out of the Protestant Reformation, that justification happens once. It's a once-for-all-time declaration. You can't become more sanctified or less 
you can't, as it were, go from, I was like 80% justified today, um, but, you know, the guy cut me off on the freeway and I said some stuff that no Christian has a business saying. And so like, I went from 80 to like 70 today. And then like I got home, I stepped on a Lego, um, that wonderful, torturous experience. And was really angry, came down some, no, your justification is, if you want to use this analogy of percentages, it's always 100%. It just is. Sanctification, on the other hand, is continuous throughout the Christian life. That can kind of go up and down, if I could use two terms. One is static, it just stays the same. One is dynamic, kind of fluctuates. Like I said, there are things that we can do that can be conducive to our sanctification and things that we do that are less than conducive. Justification is entirely God's work. We don't contribute anything to our justification. In our sanctification, the Bible teaches us, and we'll see this in just a moment, we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible can, we'll have a message in this series on sins against the Spirit. The Bible can talk about grieving the Spirit, quenching the Spirit, striving with the Spirit. No, in our sanctification, we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Justification is perfect in this life. Like I said, it never changes, it never goes up, never goes down. Sanctification is imperfect in this life. You know, we kind of, in a very real sense, sometimes as Christians, it can feel like we take one step forward, two steps back. One step forward, or two steps forward sometimes, one step back. I mean, you're still making progress, it's just imperfect progress. Finally, justification is the same in all Christians. So, I mentioned my mentor at the start of the message, 92 years old. I'm sitting at his bedside as he's dying. In that moment... He wasn't more justified than me, the nearly 21-year-old. No, we're both equally as justified. But I would be foolish and arrogant if I told you that that man wasn't more sanctified than me. <laughs> it's greater in some than in others. Okay, if that's the case, wow, that sounds like two very different things. Well, they are two very different things, but they share one thing in common. At this point, I need to kind of introduce a vital truth that I think connects the both of these. The truth that links the believer's justification and the truth that links their ongoing growth and holiness is the reality that you have been united to Christ. In theological terms, we call this union with Christ. John Murray, who wrote an excellent book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied, said that nothing is more central or basic than union with Christ. But what exactly is union with Christ? If I can give you my definition, it's there in the study guide. Union with Christ, simply defined, is the relationship between the regenerate soul in Christ by which the believer is in Christ and Christ is in the believer by faith. You are a Christian, if you're here today and you're a Christian, because you are in Christ. You are vitally connected to him. I'm running out of time, so I can't develop this as much as I'd like. If I can give you one verse or section of Scripture that teaches this so well, John chapter 15. John 15, verses 1 through 4. The analogy of the vine and the branches. 
that it's only because of our connection with Christ that we enjoy any sort of spiritual life. I have got time for one verse real quickly. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1. Look at verse 30 with me. Paul says that it is from him, from God, that you are in Christ Jesus. So there's that language. Whenever you see that language of in Christ, in him, that's speaking of our union with Christ. He says, it is from God, from him, that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us. Now know what Paul says. That Christ, who became wisdom from God for us, it's in Christ that he becomes, quote, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. You're declared righteous. You are justified because you are in Christ. But you also grow in Christ's likeness because you're in Christ. That's what connects these two truths. I did put this on the study guide. John Murray says, union with Christ is not a step in the application of redemption. In other words, it's not, okay, something that happens in the process of Christ's work being applied to us. No, it underlies every step of the application of redemption. So whether we're talking about justification, sanctification, last week we talked about adoption, the fact that we've made members of God's family, whether you're thinking of any of those truths, you always have to think about union with Christ. It's kind of like a bike wheel. You've got many spokes that are connected to the one hub. Justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification, all these wonderful biblical truths that we enjoy. All of those, it's very easy to latch onto one of them as this is the hub. No, they're all glorious truths, but they're not the hub. <laughs> no, the hub that binds all of these glorious blessings that flow from Christ together is the fact that we've been united to Christ. And I'm going to argue that it's a failure to understand union with Christ that at times makes us make artificial distinctions between being declared righteous by faith and our experience of holiness. Almost as though, well, I've heard people say this. The most important thing is your justification. Don't worry about your sanctification too much. If you worry about your sanctification too much, you're not going to be sanctified. It's when you stop worrying about your sanctification and you just rest in Christ. That's how you get sanctified. Please, please, please stop talking. Um, no. It's out of our union with Christ that we enjoy both, and so you don't pit one against the other. Arguably, I think the best book that's been written on this subject in recent years was by Kevin DeYoung. He wrote a book called The Hole in Our Holiness. Dr. DeYoung says, quote, Christ-likeness is possible, but not by merely working with Jesus or by simply imitating his example. Only by knowing our position in Jesus can we begin to live like Jesus. So what's the relationship between justification and sanctification? Well, both of them flow out of union with Christ. Okay, okay, but Kofi, you still don't answer that question you raised a little bit ago. Where do I come in? <laughs> You're still talking about all the stuff that God does. Do I just sit here? Well, no, question number four. What role does my effort play in sanctification? 
what role does my effort, what role does my activity play in sanctification? If, scientific, if my effort doesn't sanctify me, well, where do I come in? Now, there's two ways to look at that. Again, like I said, you can kind of look at this as well. I just need to pull my bootstraps up, try harder and do better. Or you can view this from the perspective of it's not about me trying harder and being a better person. But it's about me living out what God has already done on the inside. The problem is that as human beings, we sometimes tend to equate, well, if I'm doing something, then God can't be, it's either God is doing it or I'm doing it. And I think actually the Bible is a little more nuanced than that. In the context of the Christian life, there is indeed a place, and I wish I had time, I had a bunch of passages here, I don't want this message to get too long, but there's a, indeed a context, a place for the role of effort and striving in our Christian lives. Of course, it needs to be done in the right spirit and with the right motivations. That's going to be the end of our message. But I like how John Piper puts it um, in his book, um, Acting the Miracle. He said this, quote, When it comes to killing my sin, I don't wait passively for the miracle of sin killing to happen to me. I act the miracle. That's a good way to put it. Yes, it's a miracle, but I don't just wait for it to happen to me. No. I act out this miracle in my life. Okay, well, how does that happen? Okay, you're still not answering the question. Allow me to give, finally give an answer. I think there's three ways we have to think about our effort when it comes to sanctification, the role of our activity. Number one, we have to recognize that any effort we bring to sanctification, any effort we bring to growth in holiness, it has to be spirit-empowered has to be spirit empowered Romans 8:11 and Ephesians 3:16 teaches this truth that without the spirit of God energizing our efforts we can't do anything Romans 8:13 we read it last week in our scripture reading that if you by the spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh you're called to put to death the deeds of the flesh, the sinful nature. But that's not going to happen without the Spirit of God. So it needs to be Spirit-empowered. Secondly, it needs to be gospel-driven. Not just Spirit-empowered, but gospel-driven as well. What do I mean by that when I say gospel-driven? Simply put, you can't come to this with the mindset that, okay, my effort earns me something with God. That, you know, let's be honest, we've all thought this at some point. I know I did very early in my Christian life. Oh, I read my Bible today. I'm a good Christian. Killing it. Oh, I prayed today. Look at me. <laughs> I shared the gospel with someone today. Oh, oh, getting real serious now. Yeah. No. It's not that you do these things and that's what merits favor with God. It's not like, well, you know, I read a whole book of the Bible this month. Like, you know, give me a gold star and like put me up for like, Christian of the month. Like, I I'm killing it right. No, 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 no. 
Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 teaches that it's the grace of God that not only has appeared bringing salvation, it also teaches us to say no to sinful behaviors. I'm paraphrasing. To say no to sinful behaviors and to say yes to righteousness. It's the grace of God that does that. We are not trying to earn favor with God as we pursue Christ-likeness. No, we pursue Christ-likeness precisely because, if you're a believer, you already have favor with God. Obligation can't do this. You know, um, it's not as though, you know, God saved me by grace and now in my sanctification I'm paying back the favor. You know, it's not, this is like in salvation, God is not giving you a start alone so that you can buy the house and then you pay your parents back. No, in our sanctification, in our salvation, excuse me, God saves us by his grace without any, without any effort from us. And even in our sanctification, we're not paying him back. How, how could you possibly pay him back? No, no, no. It's the grace of God that leads us to repentance that promotes good work in us, not as Piper calls it, the debtor's ethic. That because, you know, God saved me, now I owe it back to him. Spirit-empowered, gospel-driven. Thirdly, it needs to be faith-fueled. It needs to be faith-fueled. I think one of the most helpful books in recent years that's been written on this subject is John Piper's book, Future Grace. Um, subtitle is The Purifying Power of the promises of God, I believe, something along those lines. Piper's contention in that book is that one of the great things that God gives us to help us in our sanctification is that he gives us the promise of the future. In other words, the grace of the future empowers our obedience in the present. Let me see if I can help this make sense. You've all read the Beatitudes, right? The, you know... Words of blessing that Jesus gives at the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount and says this is the character of a citizen of the kingdom of God. Have you noticed that in the Beatitudes, the, they all follow the same formula? You have a blessing. So he says, blessed are. And then he tells you, okay, this is the attitude of someone who's a citizen of the kingdom. And then he gives a promise. Have you ever noticed that when you read the Beatitudes? Blessed are the so-and-so, for they will so-and-so. Jesus promises that for those who are citizens of his kingdom, who are pursuing righteousness, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are the poor in spirit, who are the meek, they will inherit certain things. And Piper's contention in this book, Future Grace, which I think is a very helpful book, his contention is that it's my faith in these promises, it's my trust that God will do what he's promised that ought to fuel my obedience in this life. Kofi, 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 come on. That sounds like you're saying if I do this, God will bless me. How is that not like a soft form of the prosperity gospel? How is that not a soft form of quid pro quo? You do this, I'll do this. You, as it were, scratch God's back, if that were possible, and, yo, know, he'll scratch yours. No, no, it's not. 
because God has already promised these things, and not just the ones you read in the Beatitudes, all the promises that God makes in his word. God has already promised these things and says he will do them. All my obedience is, is me saying with my actions that I trust God to be faithful to do all he said. So far from it being just, well, uh, you know, I don't know if God's going to do this. No, our, our efforts in sanctification, our striving after holiness is always saying, Lord, I believe what you said. And so I'm going to pursue these things. If you need any proof that this is the way to live, can I put it to you that Jesus lived this way? Hebrews chapter 12, I'm sure you've all read it. You know, no, laying aside every way, you know, great cloud of witnesses. Have you ever paid attention to what it says at the end of that section? It says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. The only reason why Jesus was able to live that perfect life that we were unable to live, that he was able to die the death that we deserved, the reason he was able to go through all of that was because he recognized there was a joy that was set before him. And that as long as he pursued that joy, it would sustain him throughout his entire life. So we've asked the question, what is sanctification? We've asked the question, how does it work? We've asked the question, what's the relationship between justification and sanctification? We've asked the question, what role does our effort play? My final question this morning, and I'll be done. What are some of the Bible's motivations to holiness? How does the Bible try to motivate us to pursue sanctification and holiness? Now, there are some people who tell you that the only motivation is grace. Any other motivation doesn't work. All that stuff you're talking about, believing God's promises, the, the, no. Like, no. Actually, if you read the Bible as a whole, you'll begin to realize that there's a whole bunch of motivations. For time's sake, I just put a list of them there in your study guide. It's God's requirement for dwelling with him. Blessed are the pure in heart. What does Jesus say? For they shall see God. Hebrews 12, 14, follow peace with everyone and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's gratitude for God's mercies, Romans 12, 1. Paul says, I, brothers and sisters, I beg you by God's mercies that you present yourselves a living sacrifice to God. Personal holiness shows our love for Christ. Why Jesus could say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's mirroring who God is. Being holy just as he is holy. There is a degree, I think we talked about this when we looked at the new birth. There's a degree to which, while our holiness doesn't grant us assurance, there is a relationship between the two. As we see growth in godliness, we're assured that God is indeed working in us and we are his child. Here's one I think a lot of Christians could stand to remember. Personal holiness is a reminder that this world is not our home. Oftentimes Christians have been accused of being so, you've heard, 
You've heard this phrase before. They're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I don't think that's the problem. I think actually most Christians in the 21st century are so earthly minded, they're no heavenly good. Our pursuit of holiness reminds us that we are going somewhere. <laughs> Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 12, that as strangers and as pilgrims, we should abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. It's not by accident. He says that because you're strangers, you're foreigners and you're pilgrims, you're people traveling from one place to another. Since that's true, wage war on sin. Personal holiness honors those who have gone before us in the race of faith. And again, this is not, there's a way that this can get used where it becomes a guilt trip. Well, you don't want to disappoint, you know, you don't want to disappoint Aunt Mabel. Like, she's in heaven looking down. Firstly, no one in heaven is looking down on planet Earth. Sorry to, if you believe that, I apologize. But no, the Bible doesn't teach that. You know, your great aunt Bessie isn't looking down from heaven or like looking at you on a massive LCD screen in heaven wondering what you're doing. But there is a sense in which we do honor the memory and the faith of those who've gone before us. Hebrews 12.1, I think that's what Paul, or not Paul, but the author to the Hebrews means when he says being surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, being surrounded by all these people who did make it. <laughs> and finally, Personal holiness leads us a life of love and joy. It's as we're growing. That's how we experience true spiritual life and true joy. As I conclude this morning, uh, like I said, I wanted to kind of paint the big picture of our sanctification. And the reason for me doing that is to show that God is doing so much in our lives as Christians. Imperfect as it may be, struggling as it may be, we may have moments where we're just like, am I even growing at all? Yes, we are. It's imperfect. You know, nobody's perfect until they get to glory. But God is indeed at work in us, and that should comfort us as believers. And if you're here and you're not a believer, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, you can. I was just to call upon the Lord while he is near, to seek him while he may be found. Again, turn from your sin. We call that repentance and turn to the Lord in faith. And for those of us who are here as believers, you know, this should encourage us that we're not just waiting for, you know, the miracle of, you know, mortification of sin, the, the killing of sin in our lives. No, we're called to act out that miracle because God is at work in us. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we come before you humbled by all that you are doing in our lives as your people. We come not with any sense of self-righteousness, but only on the merits of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much that you are indeed working in us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure, that as we behold Christ, that we are being transformed slowly but surely, day by day, into his image. Father, free us from the belief that we need to earn our favor with you by how good we do. Help us to remember that it's because we have favor with you that we're able to run the race of the Christian life. 
Father, thank you so much for this time. Pray that this word blesses your people. I ask it in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.